Love you. You were preaching. It's good. Good evening. Am I on? Is this okay? We're good. Awesome. Wow. What do you say on the first weekend? I know what you say. You talk about Jesus. All right. Hey, I'm really, really glad to be with you tonight. Um, I've been excited all week to share my heart with you, and I have so much to say and so little time to say it, but my wife and I, our family and I are so grateful. We had so many people reach out to us. I said that last week. I'm going to keep saying it. This church is amazing, fantastic, and um, as I share my message with you, there are a lot of things that I'll probably talk about that maybe God did throughout the week, and I want to continue to share those things with you as testimonies, but I'm so proud to be a part of a church that has done like, I don't, I don't know, Ron Lee, six VBSs this summer, so many, seven, I, I'm not even sure, we just have so many of them, you kind of lose track, but we are reaching the kids, isn't that fantastic? We are reaching the kids, and the next generation needs to be reached in the name of Jesus, that's who we are and that's what we do. And I'm super proud to do that with you. I want to just share with you up front before we open the word and we'll pray before we do that. Um, I want to just say uh, to you that as a church, we've, uh, I know you know this obviously, Pastor Steve Shell has always led us through the word in our services uh, with books of the Bible. You're probably wondering, I've had some questions like, Pastor Ben, what are you going to do? Well, we're definitely going to open the Bible, but I'll probably... Uh, do a hybrid of topical sermon series and books of the Bible. I think the next book of the Bible I'm going to open will be the book of Jonah. Uh, so you can kind of get your heart ready for that. That'll be a fun journey. But uh, I want to also be able to share with you from my heart out of some a series that I'm going to open with over these next several weeks. And I'm calling the series, not that it fully matters what I'm calling it, but it, I think it encapsulates what I'm trying to get at. It's called Possessing the Heart of Christ. And this really is just a handful of messages or sermons where I want to talk about um, how to navigate the issues of life that we all face, but to do so by obtaining the heart of Jesus in the midst of it, because that's really what we need to do. Who is Jesus? How would Jesus handle the things that we go through? And what is he calling me to do? Because my, my goal will be in this series, as we discuss some very important issues, um, to navigate them in the name of Jesus with the nature of Jesus. And I, I think our world needs to see that Christians really look like the one they're following. And that's really part of the goal of where I'm going over these next several weeks. And I think you'll find it uh, quite interesting. But these are, not, these are more than sermons to me. These are part of my heart. I'm going to share with you some of my testimony. Um, I'm certainly going to share with you a lot of Bible, so get ready for a lot of Bible. You can open your Bible to a lot of different places. That wasn't that funny, was it? That's <laughs> didn't go very well. That's, that's okay. It's going to take us a while to coordinate laughs and jokes, and right now it's going to be like, it'll shift a little bit, though. We'll have a lot of fun, but uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and God, we're excited to, um, together as a family, for you to encourage our hearts as we open the Bible. Also, Lord, that you would convict our hearts. We want to be like you. That's our declaration tonight. And we ask, Lord, that you would make the proper adjustments in us. So as we gather together in your presence, we ask that you would speak to us as we open the word. That's what we expect. That's what we ask for. In Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. amen. My sermon title tonight is called Dealing with Shame. And as a pastor, I have found that I'm invited into a lot of different situations in people's lives. It's actually quite a privilege. It's quite an honor to be invited into different spaces and places with people. I, I get, you know, in my office, not just obviously here. I've only been here for two weeks, but over the last several years, uh, in my office, people talk to me about all kinds of issues, from dark secrets to honest confessions, get to celebrate with people from weddings to funerals. I get to see a lot. I get invited into a lot of situations. And something that I've seen over and over again is the issue of shame is woven through the fabric of a lot of our lives. 
In fact, I've shared, I've shared this message before and I've had people walk up to me and they're like, I'm so glad that God's dealt with that in my life and I never deal with, I'll never deal with that again. And it's interesting that a person would even say that to me because shame is not just an issue that we overcome like we, like we overcome a mountain. You climb the mountain, you come down from the mountain and, it, and you never face it again. Shame is a voice in our life. It's something that we have to deal with. It's something that we have to learn how to identify. It's something that we have to learn how to overcome. And it's not just something that we did overcome. It's something that we face all the time, even as Christians. We know Jesus has overcome shame in our lives. But how is it that we navigate through the life that we live and deal with this, really this formidable foe that seems to show up all of the time? Now, shame wasn't always part of the human experience. We read that from scripture all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter one. This is what it says in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. You know this verse very well. Then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We were created and we were created by God, for God, in relationship with God. Everybody say, I'm special. <laughs> that's, that's not an understatement. That actually is true. There's nothing like us in all of creation. Nothing compares. We're the crowning creation. God's crowning creation. He looks at us and he sees us as special. And he says that he made us in his image to be in relationship with him. And in verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2, it says in that context, relationship with God, that we do not have any shame. In fact, this is what it says in Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Isn't that an interesting word? They felt no shame. Adam and Eve were as vulnerable as you can be in that they were obviously naked and they weren't ashamed. And the question is, why were they not ashamed? Why did they not feel any shame at this point? And really, Part of the answer is, is because they didn't have another voice to tell them otherwise. See, what God said to them is what it was. You're walking with God in the cool of the garden, and God says, hey, this is a tree, and this is the sky, and whatever God says is fact. It's literal truth. In relationship with him, right, this is our reality back in the beginning. God is our truth. What he says is the truth, and it says they felt no shame. They have no other reason to question how it is that they should feel. No voice slipping in at this at this time, but we know that in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent is introduced. We know him as the devil because in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul identifies the serpent of old as the devil himself. Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree. Well, what happens in Genesis chapter 2, as you guys know, God introduces the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, he puts this tree in the middle of the garden and he says to Adam, he says to Eve, that you're not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he, he goes as far as saying, when you eat from this tree or if you eat from this tree, the day you eat of it, you shall die. And we all know that this serpent comes in and deceives Adam and Eve and they both eat from the tree. And something very interesting happens when they do, and this is what it says in Genesis 3, 7, verse 7 through 11, it says, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. See, now all of a sudden they know something that they didn't previously know. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man, of his, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Now this is always like the funny joke because God doesn't, it's not fun to play hide and seek with God. He always knows. That's like his big thing, right? Omniscience. God has past, present, and perfect knowledge about everything. He knows everything. So it's, he's not fun to play hide and seek with. He says, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam speaking. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And this is very, very important that we get this in verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Whose voice did you listen to? See, I'm the one that's been speaking to you and I'm the one that told you what to do and what not to do. Who told you that you were naked? How did this happen? Remember in verse seven, it says their eyes were open the minute that they entered into this disobedience. 
And God says to them, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Their eyes were open, their innocence was removed, they hid themselves from God, and this is what shame actually looks like. This is where shame entered into the human experience. And I don't know if you can remember where shame entered into your life, but I certainly can, and I wanna share some of that with you. If I can get the uh, picture of myself, this is... um, this is going to be little Ben. We got it. No, no, this is, you got to go way back to the beginning. This is older Ben. I need the other pictures, the little Ben, if you can give me little Ben. Uh, yes, this is little Ben right here. He doesn't have a tooth right there. That's, uh, that's what happens at some point. This kid right here, this is who I was, right? I think first grade or so. I was, uh, I was actually really happy. That smile is, is, is very real. It, it, does it look innocent to you? Some of you are like, well, I've had kids, probably mischievous. <laughs> All the parents said amen. But I was happy. I grew up in Kirkland, Juanita area. I had good parents. Um, you know, we were busy. Both parents had jobs and... Uh, we went to church a few times a month and all of that. And um, I mean, but I, I was a happy kid. I knew, I knew nothing else. This was my innocence. But something happened between second and fourth grade. And I want to show you the next, next picture here. Um, that's, that's little Ben too. Remember the Smurfs? Come on, everybody smile. This is great stuff here. I'm, I'm opening my heart to you. All right, go ahead with the next one. Uh, yes, this is, this is, I think, fourth grade, Ben. And uh, you don't know this and you can't see it, but I want to share it with you. What happens in fourth grade is, I, is I, I went like from skinny to not skinny. You understand what I'm talking about? I, I just blew up and my teeth grew in and they were buck teeth and I, I was really overweight and I blew up. And, and you know, kids are cruel, so I'm going to school and I hated going to school because for two, almost two years I was made fun of like every day. And these, this big coat, you see this big coat? You know we hide ourselves, don't we? Sometimes our clothes become our covering. It's a, and you can get nice clothes, Louis Vuitton. You can have some nice loin coverings, can't you? <laughs> we can do that. We, we really do know how to cover ourselves. And this is, what, this is what I did. I would cover myself. I would cover my shame. Why? Ben, why? Because people made fun of me. And I felt like nobody cared. I felt like nobody loved me. And it didn't matter. People would affirm. My parents would say and now, now and again, I love you. But it's like I couldn't hear them. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like I couldn't hear my parents tell me that they love me because of all these other voices, these voices that kept coming and shame started to take up this, this root system in, in my life. And this went on and on. And, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm 39 years old today and I can still remember the names. I can still remember the things that were said. You know what I'm talking about? Like sticks and stones may break my bones and, and, they, and they will, by the way. <laughs> but names will never hurt me. Is that a lie? That's a lie, right? That's a lie. I mean, we wouldn't have Dr. Phil, okay, if that were, or Oprah or whatever. We wouldn't have that. It wouldn't, names do hurt. Actually, when words, they go in like labels and they lodge themselves into someone's soul and the enemy, it's like a nail. The enemy will take a hammer and try to nail them in like a coffin so that he can just secure the deal. Death and destruction. Let's, let's take this one out. That he'll, have, he'll or she'll have nothing to do with the kingdom of God advancing. That, that's, what, that's what this is all about. Why do we want to reach our kids? Because it starts early, doesn't it? It starts early. The evil plan of the enemy starts early, doesn't it? Well, aren't you thankful that the plan of Jesus starts early too? I want to show you what all that making fun of did to me. I want to show you this next picture. And uh, disregard this picture. It wasn't supposed to be on this slide, but uh, I'll talk to you about that a little later. It is weird. You are right. But this one right here, you see this, Ben? You see this guy? Look at his face. That's real. I was angry. I had to take all the other guilty parties out of the picture. I, I was angry. I was doing drugs every day, abusing alcohol, immoral, all of that. I'll save you the time. We'll get cut straight to the point. I was full of hate. That face is very real. I've got three pictures that exist from the time that I was 12 to the time that I was 19, 18 years old. Three pictures are in existence. You know why? Because I wouldn't let anybody take pictures. Why? Because of what you see right here. And so I'm running out there. I'm fighting. I'm angry. But you know what happens? My, this is what, listen, this is what shame does. Shame will compel you. These external voices will cause something to settle on you on the inside, and then all of a sudden, these actions will come out of you. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning at five, six, seven years old and say, you know what, I wanna be a drug dealer when I grow up. 
You know, I want to be a gangbanger. You know what? I want to spend the rest of my life in prison. I want to hurt people. Nobody grows up. You saw that innocent picture. Nobody grows up wanting that stuff. And so we've got to realize that there's something that happens in the genesis process of our life, the beginning of our life, and shame wants to start taking over and compel us to be something that God never made us to be. And this is what happened to me. I was hearing voices in my head like, you're not good enough. You're not normal. You're not skinny. You're not important. And so this angry guy wanted to, wanted to take it. I wanted to have people respect me. I wanted to have people do what I wanted them to do and say what I wanted them to say because they were always hurting me. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I want to take authority over my reality. And so I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it any way that I have to. That's what shame drove me to do. Now, I was responsible for my decisions. I certainly was. But there was a bigger picture that was going on. And at 19 years old, I had about three months where people started talking to me about Jesus. I believe I shared some of that with you last week. I was all over the place. I'd have people, do you know Jesus? I'm like, no, random citizen. I don't know Jesus. (laughs) And it was so strange because I knew something started to happen. And without going into all of it, I remember walking into my bedroom real late, early in the morning, in fact. And I just had a bunch of things happen. I was sober and I sat down on the floor, which I don't do. I sat down on the floor and I said to God, the first prayer, I didn't even know it was a prayer. I said, if, if you show me that you're real, I'll give my life to you. But I need you to show me. This thing's got to be as real as I am right now. And I heard the voice of God, and he said, I love you, and I always have. His voice broke years of shame in my life. It just came over me in my room, and all of a sudden, something that was stronger than what I had been experiencing that drove me to be this guy, something stronger came into my heart and started to set me free. It started to set me free to where you can see it on my face. You could see it on my face because at this stage, oh, thank you for putting that picture away. (laughs) Thank you. After meeting Jesus, though, I want you to know something. Shame doesn't just go away. We still have to learn how to renew our minds according to the word, right? The enemy doesn't just let go of you just because you said, Jesus, I love you. And the enemy's like, well, I can't mess with them anymore. It's not what he does. He's an equal opportunity offender. (laughs) He will come back at an opportune time, especially if we give him food to eat. He'll eat what we give him. He'll feed on it, won't he? And so here's this reality is is that you're going to have things in life that are going to trigger those pre-programmed places that were there before you met Jesus. We all have them, and we shouldn't act like we don't. And the reality is that we have to learn how to abide in Christ and live in dependence upon the one who set us free initially. It's not just that we need Jesus to, for salvation. It's that we need Jesus to walk in freedom every day of our life. And when you lose touch with that relationship, as it says on our sign, we're not committed to a religion, but to relationship with Jesus. When you lose touch with that relationship, you can slip back into all of those old patterns, those old ways, those old thoughts, those old actions. And let's not fool ourselves and act like that's not true. It's absolutely the case. Shame is not just a mountain to overcome. It's a voice to be denied. It's a voice to be dealt with. And we look it straight in the face and we say, nope, not today. I have a shirt that says, not today, Satan. (laughs) Funny story. I'm going to share it anyways. I shouldn't digress, but I will. I ordered this shirt from Amazon and it says, not today, Satan. And I thought this is going to be really cool and hip and fun. And I'm going to wear it probably just mowing my lawn, which I have done. Out in my neighborhood, it says, not today, Satan. And it's, it's actually off-center. And I thought, wouldn't that be the case? You order a shirt, and it says, not today, Satan. And it just practically says it on the side here. So, I don't know. What is shame? What is shame? I, um, sometimes in the church, you hear about sh- guilt shame and condemnation, and almost like they're the same thing. Like God sets us free from guilt, shame, and condemnation, which is actually true, of course, but they're not all the same thing. So as I explain what shame actually is to you, I want to do so by giving some definition to guilt as well. So here's what guilt is, okay? Guilt is essentially the feeling of responsibility or remorse for an offense, 
Guilt is not a bad thing necessarily if we've truly done something wrong. If you're driving out here on 21st Avenue, and I think the speed limit is 35, I've only been here for two weeks, that's a good guess. But if you're driving 70 and you get pulled over by a police officer and you say, why did you pull me over? And he will say, well, according to the law, the speed limit is 35. And he's or she's going to write you a nice big ticket as they ought to. And you're going to say, I live by grace, not the law. That's not going to work. Just want you to know. (laughs) It's not going to work. Don't say it. But you're guilty, right? You're guilty because you've done something wrong. And for you to not feel guilty about that would would be actually an unhealthy thing. So guilt is not necessarily a bad thing. If you've committed a sin, if you've been dishonest, if you've lied, if you've cheated, or if you've said something hurtful, we actually should feel guilty. And there's a way to deal with our guilt. I'm not saying guilt should settle on us and live there. But if we don't feel guilty about wrongs that we have committed, that actually is unhealthy. So guilt can be a good thing, but guilt, when, when you have guilt and you haven't done something wrong, that also is very unhealthy as well, isn't it? So guilt is, as I said, essentially the feeling of responsibility or remorse for an offense. Guilt says to your conscience, you've sinned, you've made a mistake, or you've done something wrong. Shame is the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, done by oneself or another that we perceive as disgraceful. Shame actually literally means to cover up or envelop and it's concerned with being rather than doing. And here's what shame sounds like in your head. Shame says you are no good. You are bad. Not just that you've done bad, but you are bad. Shame says you are not enough. It's more about being than it is about behavior. So shame is more than remorse for something we have done wrong. It's an internalized disgrace and deep humiliation. It's a blow to our self-worth, our self-respect, and our self-esteem. That's what shame is. Do you understand the difference? Let me, let me give you three statements to help you really, really clearly. Guilt is feeling bad about what we do. Shame is feeling bad about who we are. Guilt is seeing what we have done, and shame is seeing ourselves as failures because of it. Guilt is an awareness of failure, and shame is a sense of failure in someone else's eyes. It's much more powerful than we realize. And let me just go ahead and sum it up by sharing with you from Romans chapter 7, verse 18 through 24, because Paul actually gets to the root of it when he talks about what the NIV calls the sinful nature, or the New American Standard calls the flesh. He's describing this in this very amazing passage. I would defer you to Dr. Steve Schell's verse-by-verse commentary on the book of Romans. I have gone through the whole thing, and it's fantastic. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. That's a key. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, here's the conclusion of all of that he said. If you didn't get any of it, this is what you need to know. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free of this body of death? This conclusion of his inability to do what is right is that I am a wretched man. Not that I have just done wrong, but this is actually what I am. Do you see the difference? In verse 14 through 20, Paul shares how the bad that he does renders him guilty. This is what we read. In verse 24, he concludes with wretched man that I am. This is shame. It's more than a feeling. It's more than just a feeling. It's a voice, and this voice carries an echo. I've seen it in men that are, that are way old, twice as old as me. In fact, one time I shared this message about shame and I had a, a Marine come up to me, a guy that had just uh, gotten out of the Marines and he walked up to me and he said, I, I realize that I've been living under this cloud of shame for many, many, many years and I've never heard anything like what you're talking about, some of the things that I'm about to share with you. And God just touched him and set him free. You know, the word will do that. Because you know why? Romans 8, chapter 1. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. That doesn't mean that we haven't done wrong, and it doesn't mean that we haven't sinned. It means that what Jesus did on the cross is more powerful than what I've done in my sin. This is why we gather. This is why we're about to take communion. We're receiving of what Jesus Christ has done, and it's more powerful.
wretched man that I am. There is no condemnation now in Christ Jesus. I want to do two things. The first is I want to identify quickly shame-based thinking. And this is what shame will do in our lives. There's thinking. And thinking does what? It leads to actions. So I want to identify shame-based thinking. And then I'm going to identify shame-based actions. And then we'll talk about moving on because that's the hope-filled part. The first type of thinking that I've identified, there are a lot more, but I'm just going to give you six, is worthlessness. And this is what it sounds like. I am not useful, I'm not important, I'm not helpful, I'm not needed, and I'm not wanted. And this might not come out of your mouth, this might not come out of my mouth, but it's something that can be very real in a person's life. It tends to make you think that people don't like you, and sometimes we actually hide it, harbor it, and celebrate it. Do you hear what I'm saying there? We hide it, we harbor it, we celebrate it like this is kind of who we have. And it'll sound like this. Well, you know, I just don't really fit in. And we, and we celebrate that. Now, here's the thing. God loves diversity, amen? He doesn't make like one snowflake the same as the other. So God's really into diversity. Look at your neighbor and say, you different. Some of you are not obedient. They're just not. We're just, we're just, we're just, we're just gonna, we're gonna work together. Unity is not about conformity of all of us looking the same, talking the same, being the same, acting the same. We often get offended by the different preferences and variations of one another. That's actually not maturity, by the way. How did, did that one go over like a lead balloon? That might have, that it's not how I was intended. Anyhow, unity is not about conformity. It's about coming together and having harmony in the midst of diversity. That's what it's all about. Worthlessness kind of acts, it will isolate. It will cause us to isolate ourselves because nobody understands me. Nobody's like me. Nobody struggles like I do. Nobody goes through what I do. Everybody has struggles. Everybody has pain. Everybody has problems. Everybody has their fit and everybody has their thing that they're not good at. This is the reality. And so we can't allow these labels to settle on us when Jesus has made us all different. And we can celebrate that together. None of us are worthless in here. Is that true? Okay, I'm preaching. Here we go. Number two, it's a failure mindset. I'm not able to do it. I can't succeed. It's an either or type of thinking. And this is what it's kind of like. It's if I'm not smart, I'm dumb, right? If I'm not as smart as so-and-so, that must mean that I'm, that I'm dumb. It's either or. And that's just such a, that's, that's such a terrible way of thinking. And that happens to some of us sometimes. So it can sabotage our future. It stops us before we even try. Like, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I won't be good at that. Whatever happened to trying? Shame will stop us before we ever step out. It's that I had this picture of like, here's our future. And, and we all have the, 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 our future is in God's hands, but it's, it's like held out. Like, I want to follow Jesus and I want to do what he calls me to do. And I want to be what he calls me to be. But then it's like this, this boxing glove of shame just, just punches us and we never move forward because we have this feeling like if I do, if I do step out, I'll, I'll, it'll never succeed anyway. So why even do it? Why even do it? Because God's bigger than you and I. That's why we do it. Because God's word says we should and we can. That's why we do it. Number three is overly self-focused. And it's where we kind of have this idea that I'm the most important person in the room. We filter how we hear other people. It's, it's sort of like this. I don't know if you can relate, but your spouse or if you're not married, maybe somebody in your family or, or maybe even at the workplace, they'll say, oh, I'm really tired. And you personalize it and say, yeah, tired of me. Uh-oh. We, it's like deep-seated personalization because when people speak around us, we're so focused on self, we hear them say it about us. Overly self-focused. Shame will do that. Number four is rationalization. I'm not to blame for this. I'm not wrong. Anybody see that in Adam and Eve? We give excuses, explanations. Uh, we justify our behavior. And you know what? When we do that, we never deal with the root system of shame. Right? Denial is not our friend. It's our, it's our enemy. And uh, sometimes we'll intellectualize it too. We want to develop um, this thinking that I'm so smart and here's why I do what I do. And, da, 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 da. and I'm like, how about you do what you do because you have sin in your life? <laughs> I mean, I'm just not a counselor for sure. But every now and again, I'm sitting with someone and I'm wondering like here, I'm sitting with someone and they're telling me what's wrong in their life. And, and, and again, if you're a counselor, I love you. I need you. I, I, 
I'm sitting with somebody and they're just, they're over explaining everything and they're excusing everything and they got a reason for everything and it's because I don't work out and it's because I don't do this and that's why, you know, it's like, you know, what if you just come clean and come honest and humble yourself before God? Anybody ever done this before? You remember when we used to do this? Because all of our intellectualism never worked and so all we could do is say, God help me. Is that, is, that, is that beyond us? Are we too smart for that these days? No, we got to go to our knees. We got to ask God to help us again. We are not too smart. And this kind of thinking where we rationalize, it's, it really can be shame motivating us to be too smart for dealing with our problems. Number five is repression. And this is where you don't deal with your feelings. I'm, I'm not really feeling that bad. Nothing's wrong. I'm fine. We suppress our desires, feelings, actions. We struggle with levels of denial. And that always leads to terrible secrets, doesn't it? And it gives a permanent residence for shame in our life. We suppress our feelings. I mean, I don't know how much to say here on this, but I grew up in a home and I love, I love our family, but it's almost like you know, men don't share their feelings, right? Men don't cry, men don't share their feelings, men don't talk about things. You know, this idea that women are over-emotional and men, can, you can never get anything out of them. <laughs> that's a lie. God gave us emotions. You know, that's a label. Why don't you just rip that label right off? It's not true. You know, when you suppress your feelings, it goes deep down and you never know what it robs from you. You, you, we might never know what it's robbing from our life just simply because we can't open up. If you're a man, if you're a woman, no matter what you've gone through, and I'm not minimizing your pain or your problems nor your issues, I don't have the right to do that and I won't, but I can tell you this, processing your feelings is very healthy. It creates emotional health in our lives that we all need and it breaks the power of shame when you let somebody, a trusted person, into where you're at. Number six is condemnation. And this is, this is where worthlessness will lead us. It's I will never be good enough. I will never change. God will never love me. Nothing will ever happen. It's conviction without hope and it's not from God. Conviction without hope is not from God. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. But conviction that doesn't have a door into the freedom that Jesus paid for, that is not from the Lord. And it could be a voice of shame in our life. These are mindsets that we can identify. There's many others. What about actions? The voice of shame causes these destructive actions from these thought patterns and mindsets. The first one is perfectionism. We prove our worth by seeking perfect ways of being or doing. And that doesn't pan out very well when you raise a family, does it? Start to set really high expectations on your kids. And then all of a sudden, your children are a mirror of you. I don't want to go too far in that, ladies and gentlemen. You just know what I'm saying. <laughs> Perfectionism. We want to deal with that in, in our lives. Number two is blaming others. We cover our shame by ascribing guilt to other people. Number three, we we judge other people. We criticize other people to make ourselves feel better, right? That's what we do. We criticize other people. We want to bring them down so that I can feel better. It's a place of power. It's a position of authority and power over other people. If not in reality, certainly in my own heart and mind. If I can tear you down, it will build me up. But all we're doing is building a sandcastle that eventually will fall over anyways. It's not real. It's not substance. It doesn't last you know, we can't celebrate with other people, and so we have to judge why someone's getting promoted. Everybody say, Joseph, you know. In fact, let me park there. If you have a problem where you criticize people regularly and consistently, I would encourage you strongly to bring that before God. Ask him to sensitize your heart. This is something that I have to do regularly. I have to ask God to help me to not criticize other people. It's so, so important. Jesus doesn't celebrate it, and I found that to be the case. When I'm in his presence, all of a sudden something starts to happen, like, hey, Ben, those thoughts aren't okay. Those words aren't okay, and God has a way of helping us with that. Number four is self-punishment, what I'm calling it. We harm ourselves because we don't think we deserve to be happy, and by happy, I mean blessed. I don't just mean we have a, a nice car and house. I mean even just having our soul at peace. We sabotage future jobs, future relationships, Maybe if you had a terrible divorce, 
um, and you just don't think that you should ever get married again because, hey, this is just going to work out terribly. And so if you have something that maybe is coming about that could be a godly relationship, you just sabotage it because you want to really just add to the pain and the harm in your life because you don't deserve it. Anybody had this happen? I'm saying you, but I mean us. I don't mean you as in you personally. Number five is defensiveness. We defend ourselves from any voice that brings truth to our attention. We can't listen to criticism. We interpret evaluation or behavior as a personal judgment. I've worked in many different job environments, including the church. And you know know what I think about the church? I think the church should be a place where we really, really learn how to speak the truth in love. And we're not offended by one another. And I think that would be such a witness to the world The world would see love in the midst of this kind of stuff. Not love when it's easy, but love when we're truthful, when we're honest, when we, in a vulnerable way, offer something not knowing exactly how it's going to come back. It's so important that we not just defend ourselves, but we keep ourselves humble before God and before one another. Number six is controlling. We manipulate others by trying to control their thoughts and actions, which, by the way, you can't do, right? We try to. Sometimes I think if I could just control this person, it'd be better. It's not a right thought. (laughs) You've thought it before. I'm just pulling it out of your mind. It's just a prophetic thing that's going on. I'm really just perceiving what's happening in your mind right now. And as the spokesman, I'm kind of, you see what I'm saying, prophesy. (laughs) But this can lead to abuse. Physical, verbal, and emotional abuse. This controlling behavior. Sometimes we want to control because we feel a sense of shame. We feel a sense of shame and it just comes out of us. Arrogant behavior that speaks, of it, speaks for itself. Addictions, we medicate ourselves to feel better. Drugs, abuse of alcohol, pornography. Average American watches two hours of television a day. Food, sports, spending. Come on, somebody, you just keep going. We medicate ourselves. We want to feel better. I'm not saying, I mean, half of this list, you know, most of that list is bad. Anyways... But some of it isn't necessarily wrong, but I think that like, you know, we can over-occupy ourselves with even sports. Am I going to punch somebody right here? It's going to happen. <laughs> you can. You can know everything about sports and nothing about Jesus, and there's no way your life's going to be great. There's just no way. And you may say, well, Ben, how does shame tie into like having this love for sports? I'm not saying you can't like stuff. Everybody agree? Like you can like and enjoy, but you should not love I mean, we are, we are missionaries of Jesus Christ in this world, and nothing comes above the lordship of Jesus Christ. We can like and enjoy things, but if we go too far, you know, sometimes we're medicating something in ourselves. We really are. Now, how do we move beyond our shame? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that tonight. <laughs> the first thing we have to do, we have to do, is we have to come to Christ, I'm sure most, if not all of us, have already done that. We come to Jesus honestly. We come to him in surrender. We come to him in repentance and faith. He's the only one that lived a sinless life. He gave his life in exchange for our life, and he will forgive our sins, and he'll restore us to right relationship with the Father. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said this because of the burden that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were placing on the people according to the law, and they themselves were not even able to do what they wanted other people to do. We know this. We expect you to do this, but I'm not even able to live this way. And Jesus says to all who were listening in verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. See, Jesus is the only one that can settle the turmoil in here. He's the only one. I mean, it's like a smart bomb. He'll just place the truth right in there and just, it, he, that turmoil, that churning that, you, that we feel, that we sense, Jesus can deal with it. He can settle it. He can satisfy it by his grace and his power. We have to come to Christ. We could not fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, but Jesus did, and he invites us to come. It says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus bore our shame. He bore our shame. It says in Hebrews 12 that that he endured the cross despising the shame. He endured all of that pain because, because of us. The Romans took him and they beat him 
And they humiliated him and they shamed him and they nailed him to a cross and they put a sign above his head to mock him and it said the king of the Jews, everybody laugh at this guy. And I know a lot of our pictures, they show him with like this, this, this little material over him. Ladies and gentlemen, he was naked. Just like Adam and Eve were in the garden, he was naked and he was exposed. Those pictures are not real. They, they stripped him of all of his clothes. No dignity whatsoever. And they beat him and they mocked him and everybody laughed at him. And they said, Jesus, why don't you come off the cross and save yourself? And it says in Hebrews 12 that he endured all of the pain despising the shame, God in human flesh doing this for us. This is, this is not even reasonable. It doesn't even make sense. This is the story. This is why we worship. This is why we're passionate. This is why we're awestruck. This is why we live in wonder is because God came in human flesh and allowed all of us to do this to him. And he still in the midst of it said, I love you and I always have. You can do this to me because I know something can happen. After all of this, I will endure it. I will despise the shame because of something greater on the other side of it. Isn't that a miracle? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome about the Jesus that we follow? For the joy set before him. I can't even picture Jesus enduring that with a smile on his face, but somehow, at least in himself, there was that. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. He took our shame, our humiliation. I want to park right there. I don't know where else to go, Craig. I don't know where else to go. Jesus, help us. Number two, we want to engage our relationship with God. This is how we move beyond shame. First, we have to see the beauty of Jesus, and we have to come to Christ. Amen. We want to see the beauty of Jesus. The second is engage your relationship with God. He's not looking for a better performance from us. He wants a better relationship with us. <laughs> None of our pitiful performance is going to impress the God of all creation. I'm not saying we shouldn't work and we shouldn't work hard. I'm simply saying that our best, as Romans says, is as filthy rags. That's why the gospel is so confrontational. You tell the best person on the planet that on their best day, it's filthy rags before God and his righteousness. He doesn't want a better performance. He wants a better relationship with us. He says to his disciples in John 15, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. The one who cannot be impressed by anything wants a friendship with you and I. Jesus. Walking in relationship with God changes anything and it transforms how we see ourselves and it transforms how we see one another. He sets the pattern for our identity and he helps us then to bring dignity to one another as well. For me, it looks like getting up every day and spending time with him. That's what it looks like enjoying my relationship with God, getting into his word, knowing that it's transformational, not just checking the box. I want to know his word. I want to hear his voice. I want to bring all of my troubles and difficulties, my celebrations to him in prayer. I want this and I want it more than I have it. My goal in my relationship with God is not even to pray consistently. It's to enjoy praying consistently. It's not just about doing it. It's about doing it with love. It's about doing it with enjoyment because he calls me friend. It's beautiful. It's what breaks the shame of that 17-year-old that felt like nobody loved him. Felt like nobody cared. Felt like nobody saw him. Jesus saw me. And he wants a better relationship with me. Number three is we remove the mask that shame has made. In a relationship with God, we must start with honesty. God does not work with us where we think we are. He works with, with us where we actually are. And so he loves honesty. And it's like in a family, it's like when somebody says something that you don't want to hear, at least it's out in the open. It better, it's better to hear it than to not know about it. And we realize that. Things that are in the darkness, you know, they, they live but God wants us to come out and be clean. Come out of the shadows and talk to him honestly. What shame have you experienced in your life and what has it caused in your life? 
We tell ourselves these, these stories and we try to cover it up and it doesn't matter how old we are, how long we've known the Lord. We, we try to cover things up and act like it's not there and God just wants us to be honest. He can trust people that are honest, can't he? What have you done that you're ashamed of? Can you confess it and repent of it? What has happened in your life that has caused you shame that somebody else has done to you? Can you admit it? Can you come to him and be vulnerable about it? This is what we must do. We must remove the mask. We don't live with masks. Nobody wants hypocrisy. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite, but we have to remove it and allow Jesus to transform our hearts. Number four is we break agreements with lies. Romans, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Right? He, he accuses us day and night. This is the voice that we hear. I mean, it, 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 I actually think what I'm talking about is spiritual warfare. I really do. In fact, the next several weeks, I'm going to talk to you about spiritual warfare, but it's not going to sound like it to most people because the devil even likes to work in a way where the church doesn't realize what spiritual warfare is. I'm passionate tonight. You're right. Because I don't want people's future to be bound up by something that Jesus says you no longer have to face on your own, and I've broken the power of it. And so we have to speak honestly about it. But I'm going to talk to you about offenses and forgiveness and all of that, and I really believe it's spiritual warfare. You know, the enemy doesn't have the horns and knock on our door on October 31st. <laughs> he works in this kind of stuff. His, his, his voice, he's the accuser of the brethren. We don't just face shame from self and people and events, but the enemy wants to shame us in our hiding and our coping and our spiritual warfare. We can, we can believe lies about self. And when we do that, enemy doesn't have to do a, a lot, but he'll just, like I said, he'll take the hammer and nail, nail it in the coffin. God wants us to identify those lies. He wants to re- us to renounce them as falsehood for what they are. In fact, our staff went through that this week, and I talked about just stripping labels off. Like whatever, whatever you feel like has been a label over your life, this thing that's identified you, this thing, this narrative, maybe other people said it, maybe you've believed it. You just have to rip the label off, renounce it as falsehood, and speak the truth over your life. I am not this. I am a new creation in Christ. Behold, all things have passed away. They're old. All new things have come. This is what we are. We are new creations in Christ. You may not feel like it. You may not fully act like it. But the truth is that Jesus established it. He did that for us. He did that for us. And so we have to renounce the falsehood. Maybe it's not a sin that we've committed per se, but it's something that has settled over our life. And it's just not who we are. Jesus didn't create us for this. And the fifth and the final thing is we need to believe the truth. In spiritual warfare training, we talk about confessing, renouncing lies, but we also have to believe the truth. And we have to know the truth through the word of God. Jesus is the truth. The word of God is the truth. He'll set us free. There is power in the word to break strongholds. You know what a stronghold is? It's a house made of thoughts. It lodges itself in in our soul. And the word will just explode those things. And we thank God for it. We must believe the truth. I want to show you a picture uh, as I close. We'll go to communion here in just a moment. But can I, can we go back to that funny picture of the, uh, yeah, I really, I'm sorry for the right side, this side, but I want you to look at this picture. Everybody see this? It's a really nice picture, isn't it? What do you think? Yeah, it's an oil on canvas. It's a painting of a teenage boy holding a pipe. It's actual, the actual painting's 39 inches tall. It's 32 inches wide. And um, would you want, not this, would you want that hanging on your mantle at home? No, I've never met anybody that would. I don't. I... Craig, you, you want that? You want me to go get that for you? No. It was painted in 1905 by a 24-year-old artist in Paris. His name was Pablo Picasso. Yeah, now you're changing your mind, aren't you? <laughs> Comes from what's called the Rose Period. And uh, you'll see during that time when he painted, in those years, early 20s, he actually painted a lot of his paintings with roses. Sort of a strange thing, actually. Uh, artists can do that kind of stuff. 1950, this painting sold to a wealthy American for $30,000, but in May of 2004, it sold for $110 million. In fact, in 2004, the reason that I'm showing this to you is because it was, it was the 
top producing art piece in 2004. There, there had never been anything like it that had sold for that amount of money. Since then, I think 18 pieces of art have sold for more than that. Really, really high, even a lot higher than that. $110 million, 2004. It set the record. I want to ask you a question. Is it, is it worth $110 million? You're like me. I like you guys. And you like me. Well, you don't have a choice at this point. So. Sorry. I kind of think about all the different things that we, we do. We have, a, we have a food bank here that we do on Wednesdays. Debbie Moore runs out with some of you as volunteers. Fantastic. We feed people, maybe 100 people a week. That's amazing. I'm, I'm going to go serve with my family. Um, hope to do that really soon. Think about all the shelters we could build, all the things that we could do to serve and help and bless people all over the United States. $110 million. I just need a fraction of that to go buy a new house in Federal Way somewhere. <laughs> Doesn't seem worth it, does it? But the fact is, is that this is worth whatever someone is willing to pay. And it actually doesn't matter what we think. We can say whatever we want because this is worth what that person was willing to write in their checkbook for. That's, that's the truth, even though our opinion may be what it is. And the reality is, is what are you worth? What am I worth? It's interesting because according to God, I'm worth the son of God shedding his own blood. This is what God says about me. I and you, we are worth the life of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. And here's the deal. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about my worth or your worth. It doesn't matter what mom said or dad said or grandma or grandpa or brother or sister or employer. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about my worth and about your worth because God the Father sent his one and only son and he says that I and you are worth absolutely everything. And every other voice that says otherwise is just a lie. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my story and I'm sticking to it. That's the truth. That's the truth. Our worth has never been found in some pitiful performance, and it never will be. I'm not saying we don't serve God wholeheartedly. We do. We love him with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. But the reality is we don't do it for his approval. He gives it to us through his son. There's only one perfect person. Healing from shame is found in the only one who overcame shame, and his name is Jesus Christ. And as we come to communion tonight, I don't think, I, I can't think of a better way to do it than to do so saying what I just said, that Jesus gave his life as a divine exchange. What he did through the cross is more powerful than what we have done in our sinfulness. Isn't that the truth? If I could have those who are going to help me tonight as we receive communion together, they're going to come and we get to share a special time as we receive the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And here's the thing. You guys can go ahead and, and prepare that and get ready. During these moments, I, I want us to consider the full implication of the life of Jesus and what he has done for us. He came to offer us an exchange. Isn't that true? His righteousness for our unrighteousness. His perfection for our imperfection. His life broken. His body broken for our brokenness. And he comes to cover our shame. He comes to cover our shame. And I've just recently learned the new tradition. This is new for me. It's not new for you of how it is that we receive communion together when the trays are passed. Each one of us gets to pass the tray to the person next to us. And this is what Pastor Steve Shell has led us in for many years, and I am starting to love more and more as I'm reading about it and I'm watching videos from the past. We get to minister to one another as we pass the trays, and we say this, as you always have, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And in this way, we minister to each other as his body. And we want to hold the elements until the end, and we'll receive communion together. Amen? Amen.
Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just pray that you would shatter the shackles of shame. And we thank you that what you did on the cross, by your death, you purchased us back. And through your resurrection, you give us new life. As we come to your table here tonight, your body broken, your blood shed, we remember and we recognize that forgiveness is found in you. New life is found in you. And we come to receive. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us what we need to see, that we would experience what we need to experience. And as we take a few moments, Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that we might repent, that we might celebrate, but that we might come to you honestly. And we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this. I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, this is the cup in my new covenant, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The body of Christ was broken for our brokenness, so we receive together tonight. The blood of Christ was shed to establish a new covenant between us and God. Let's receive together. Father, we thank you tonight that through your death you broke our shame. And we can celebrate. And Lord, you've given us the gift of repentance that we can turn our hearts, we can turn our lives to you at any moment in time. We don't have to live in any darkness whatsoever. You suffered enough. And I just say that to you tonight. Lord, you suffered enough on our behalf. And we thank you and we celebrate your death, your burial, and your resurrection. And we look forward to being with you again. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. We thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me say this to you as we conclude. The first is the ushers are going to come forward and you can pass those cups to the center. When we were praying before the surface, um, I had this picture as I was praying over my message, and it was a picture of a room, and, uh, and in the room was all the furniture that was set up. You know, there's the couch, there's the table, various things were set up, just kind of like a living room would be normally set up, and it looked nice, it looked clean, it looked well kept, nothing seemed wrong. Everything seemed like it was in its proper place, but... If you could kind of peer past the couch, you would see all of this stuff behind the couch. <laughs> Some of you clean folks, you clean, you can't help it. Even right now, you're thinking about going home and cleaning. <laughs> I could peer behind the, the chair. I could look underneath the table. I, I could see that there, was, that there was dirt, that there was things that have collected over the years. Yeah, the, the room looked fine. The room looked great. People would walk in and they wouldn't notice what might be underneath, what might be around what might be behind. But there's a certain kind of person that would. And I felt like what the Lord was showing me in this picture, especially as we receive communion, Jesus paid for all. Our heart, we can, we can everything can look good. Everything looks like it's supposed to look. Everything looks like it's in its proper place. We can smile the part we can do. But something tells me that not everything is always as it seems. And the Lord wants to sweep out the cobwebs and he, want to, he wants to rem remove even the dirt and the grime and the, the things that collect over the years. And here's my encouragement to you. Jesus paid for it all. He paid for it all. And my heart is this, whether I say it the right way or not, my heart is to say this, that Jesus has the power to remove those things that no one else sees and nobody else may ever know, never know about. 
And you might be here tonight and thinking, well, Ben, that's not me. I, I love Jesus. I'm doing great. Keep doing what you're doing. But if you got some of that stuff behind the couch and you have some of that stuff underneath the table and around the chair, friend, let me encourage you. Don't go home tonight just with the smile on your face acting like the room is exactly as it's supposed to be. God wants to do more than just us look nice. He wants to cleanse all of our unrighteousness. That's what he paid for, and he paid for nothing less. Can you say amen? amen? If that's you, find a friend tonight. Find someone tonight to pray with you, and just move that out. Jesus paid for it all. Amen? Amen. amen.